Oh hey, you're listening to Pep Talk, a podcast launched during the national lockdown in April 2020 to celebrate and support our favourite New Zealand businesses. Join Grace Creft, ex-lawyer and former owner of Sweet Bakery and Cakery, to hear about how some of our favourite businesses built their brands, the ups and downs along the way, and what we can do to support them, both now and once business as usual returns. So, are you ready for a little pep talk on your coffee break? Then here's your host, Grace. So today is maybe a little bit unusual on the show because I'm actually interviewing Joe, the co-founder of Six Barrel Soda Co. Six Barrel Soda is a Wellington independent soda company making syrups and sodas in weird and wonderful flavours. Having clocked being the market leader in craft soda here in New Zealand, Joe and the team are now looking overseas, starting to bring the Six Barrel brand to life in Australia, the US and Hong Kong, with more to come soon. So what's so unusual about that, you might be wondering? Well, as you might have heard if you caught our pilot episode, I actually work as the marketing manager for Six Barrel Soda Co. So yep, this episode is pretty close to home. Although I am quite familiar with the Six Barrel story and obviously the brand myself, I promise I didn't just twist my boss's arm to come on the show to fill a gap. There are way too many amazing businesses out there to have to do that. I genuinely know this will be a really interesting story for you all to hear. And I'm also looking forward to maybe having a bit of a male perspective on the show and I guess balancing out things a little bit there too. So Joe promises me that there will be some surprises along the way for me and some things that I don't know about the business. So let's find out. Oh, hi, Joe. <laughs> Welcome to Pep Talk. So for everyone out there, you might be interested to know that Joe and I actually coincidentally both live in the same town in the Wairarapa, which is just outside of Wellington. So we are actually recording this separately in our bubbles as always, but this time we're just down the road from each other. So we could probably just go outside and yell and um, I could probably hear you, Joe. You probably could. Um, it'd be, it's like, it's maybe the first podcast that's been recorded completely in Featherston. Yeah, that's pretty special. All right, so as always, I like to warm up with some this or that questions, and you are so not going to get off the hook with this, show. So here we go. We've got first up, dancing or singing? Wow, dancing. Oh, that was quick. Singing's good too, but dancing is more, um, it's more complete. <laughs> what about both at the same time? That's that's fantastic if you can pull that off, but it's like never karaoke. a great. It's not a great look. Yeah. All right. Next up, we've got beer or wine. Uh, beer, beer. I guess. Like I like wine too, but um, I don't often just crack a bottle of wine, so probably beer. Yeah, beer. All right. Would you rather give a gift or receive a gift? <sighs> like. Like receive, I like to give a gift, but I, I, I'm usually caught up with um, worry and fear that it's not awesome enough. So get, getting a gift is good. Yeah. Although on the other side of it, when you receive a gift, there's like a bit of anxiety around making sure it's obvious how much you like it. True. Yeah. Getting a bad gift is bad. I think getting, at least you get something. 
Yeah. Basketball or football? Basketball. What's football? Basketball. Soccer. Yeah, okay. No, basketball for sure. <laughs> okay, It's good. the best. All right. And last up, oceans or mountains? Uh, oceans? Like the mountains? sea or the hills? The sea. Mountains are overrated. What are they good for? I don't know. Oceans Climbing. are the best. Climbing. Skiing. I'm not skiing. Swimming's good. All right. I think that you got off the hook pretty lightly there. That wasn't so bad. No, they were good. We could just do an hour of that if you want. <laughs> I don't have any more questions. <laughs> All right. Let's get straight into talking about the beginnings of Six Barrel. And we're just going to pretend for a second that we're not right in the very hectic middle of COVID-19. And I'm going to go actually a little bit further back because as with a lot of people that we talk to, your beginnings aren't in business at all. You were originally a hospitality guy working as a bartender. You grew up in Tauranga and you studied at Victoria Uni. Tell us what did you study at uni and what did you think you were going to end up doing? Like what was Joe most likely to be in your uni yearbook? Wow. Um, I didn't. I never really had a great idea of what I wanted to do. Um, at school, at high school, I was kind of, I was like reasonably smart and wanted to, wanted to be rich. Um, but in Tauranga, there wasn't like, there wasn't a lot of, like, it's a, it's a kind of weird, it's a small town that's quite big. Um, so there's, there wasn't a lot of like breadth of, jobs and people doing things in the community outside of kind of like um the the kind of what do i want to be when i grow up list of jobs so you know basically everyone i knew was you know my my mum's friends and things were tradies or nurses or teachers or um yeah like those those sorts of jobs which you know are all wonderful um but there wasn't I felt like there was, there was never the thing that I truly wanted to be that I saw. Like you couldn't see it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think there was anyone who was like, wow, I want to do what they are doing. Um, so I, do you know, <laughs> I don't know if you had this in school, but we had one of those things where you type, you, f you answer like a hundred questions and it tells you what you want to be when you grow up. Yes. I think we did do that. Did you do that? I did that. That was the only, that was the only careers counseling I had. And I'm not even kidding. I was 17 years old and I punched in, you know, the answers to these questions and it told me I should be a judge. <laughs> a judge? <laughs> what? Like, no, where do you even start with that? Like, not like you should get into law. It was like, you should be a judge. And I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's a, you know... Uh, a, a good thing on or, or not but there's um, still time you know like a lot of people get into the judiciary quite late in their careers so yes. it can still happen just go straight to being a judge um <laughs> i so i studied i i i studied law uh not in, <laughs> <laughs> because of the survey it worked like, honestly partly because of the survey um and partly because uh that was one of the only jobs you know like the jobs outside of those that i saw I was like, I want to be reasonably rich. And the two jobs that I knew you could make good money were being a lawyer or being a doctor. And I didn't want to be a doctor because you have to do weird body stuff. And I wasn't really down with that. So I was like, well, I guess I'll be a lawyer then. Um, 
so yeah so i went to law school at vic um and i did a double degree with um uh, a ba in psychology uh and then about after my third year of law school i realized it was not for me and that i wasn't going to be a lawyer and um, you got quite a long way through well yeah you know i got the 200 level papers out of the way um but i had this i had this flatmate willie who was also at law school with me and he was like the archetypal law student you know he was like like tall and handsome which kind of doesn't help but it does help um but he was also really smart and he was like like clerking in the holidays and tutoring students and i was just kind of hanging out and he was like getting A's and I was kind of hanging out and getting not great marks. And I wasn't, I was quite interested in the subject, but I was like, I'm not going to be a lawyer. Willie's going to be a lawyer. So I decided to get out of that, finished off my BA um, and I was working in hospitality and into that. So kept doing that for a while and then went overseas. So you started traveling around a bit and working you worked in some fancy bars in was it paris and london which sounds very glamorous um can you tell us a bit about what that's actually like like it, is it as fancy being on the other side of the bar and do you get any wild stories from your time over there yeah um i had i had four years in australia before that so i worked mostly in oh, entirely in hospitality in melbourne and then I had about six months living in Byron Bay before I went over to Europe. Uh, was it glamorous? If the hospitality is funny, right? Like it feels, it feels very glamorous. And we had the bars I worked at, they were like celebrities and, you know, people who weren't celebrities, but were like, felt like they were celebrities. And, you know, <laughs> can you drop some names for us? Who are the celebs? Um, I, I made a martini for Pierce Brosnan, which was pretty cool. Cause I was like, martini for james bond but also like he was he hadn't been bond for a while and was still drinking like shaken not stirred martinis which is a bit sad <laughs> he'll always be bond he was like my bond from when i was younger yeah i guess so i was never a bond guy so i didn't really i wasn't too fussed about him um paul simonon from the clash was kind of the coolest celebrity yeah he was great um he just drinks neat tequila which is very cool yeah um i don't know who else was there like hugh grant came into our bar in london um and then the bar i worked at in paris was like um it was the buddha bar which you know you might know of from the early 2000 house mixtapes um but that was like a really well-known ah oh, buddha bar was like this i don't know it was this really well-known um kind of rich person's club in Paris and you turn up, it was in the bottom of like this huge um, old hotel and you turn up and there'd be like McLarens and Ferraris parked outside. But because it had this, so the, yeah, and a lot of the customers would be like, um, you know, Middle Eastern billionaires and um, fancy French people and stuff. But because it had this house music kind of like, um people knew of it it was really was relatively it's relatively famous so we also got like a lot of tourists through who'd come in and be like oh yeah cool can i just grab some drinks and you're like yeah they are insanely expensive here 
and people didn't kind of i don't know so that was cool that was I, it wasn't glamorous it felt a bit glamorous but in hindsight it was not very glamorous because you're still just mopping the floors at the end of the night were you like flipping the um cocktail shakers around and stuff the, the bottles flipping the co- yeah yeah there's a name for that. that right all of that flare it's called flare that's the one i can totally I, see you doing that flare is not very cool in bartending scenes in the bartending scene but it, there are people who do it there was one guy in um one of my favorite french french bartending stories was i didn't speak really any french at all uh and all the other staff at buddha bar were french and on like my third night there i was just standing behind the bar and this like french dude was like just cock just flaring like crazy like just just all sorts of crazy shit and i was like oh yeah okay whatever and then he just like stops looks at me and goes make flair and i was like nah man i don't make i don't make flair but i like it that was cool um yeah so i was just making drinks and um you know serving customers pretty much pretty much straight bartending over in europe whereas um australia was more of a mix of restaurants and cafes and bars and then so that kind of gets us back to new zealand and you and your best friend from school mike decide to start a business so you had a couple of hospitality businesses in wellington did you kind of decide on running hospitality businesses straight away or were you open to other ideas like which way around did it go were you like we want to start a business what should we do or we love hospitality let's start a hospitality business um no it went neither of those ways so how that happened was i was in london and mike got in touch with me i think he sent me a text or something and was like hey what's your address i've got something to send you and i was like what is it because this is weird we don't send each other things and he was like it's a business pitch and i was like okay this is random and weird and i love it um and anyway so two weeks later this this like 20 page intense business pitch turns up and mike basically had this idea had it all planned out and wanted me to come back and and set it up and run it um for him and what was the idea (laughs) so um well i'll tell you later in a sec but um so but then what happened was i so i came back and and we tried to do it and it didn't work so we ended up doing something else but the idea was i think i can tell you this because i think it's not going to happen now but for a long time it was mike is obsessed with like hot springs um like loves he's he like has been to almost all the hot springs in new zealand including the ones where you've got to like walk through someone's farm for four hours um and he's done that overseas a lot as well so he was he was into the idea of setting up a hot springs business in wellington um and obviously there's no thermal groundwater here so it's really hard and that's why there's no you know there's no hot springs here um but he was going to combine that with heat transfer technology which was kind of coming along pretty quickly to use groundwater, which there happens to be under Wellington city to turn that into, um, efficient hot bathing water. Uh, so that was the idea. It was going to be this weird kind of like post-apocalyptic, 
we were originally trying to do it in the garage project site. So it was going to be like post peak oil, uh, revolutionary hot springs business. Anyway, it was pretty wild and I love the kind of craziness of it. Um, and why did he come to you to run that? Why did he think of you? Uh, I think he wanted me to run the kind of customer facing side of it. So the, um, I guess the hospitality element of it. So we wanted it to be more than just like a, you know, swipe your 10 trip ticket and come in. We wanted it to be mm, a lot more of an experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. and obviously from your bartending days, you've got a lot of customer service and creating experiences for customers. Yes. That was the idea. Um, the problem is it's way more expensive to do all of that stuff than we thought. <laughs> and the groundwater under Wellington is not hot enough and yeah, there's a lot of problems, but, um, it was cool. And we tried really hard to do it for a while. Um, but anyway, so we, as part of that, we took a lease on a site at the top of Cuba street, which was a kind of an abandoned car yard. Um, it was a few hundred square, uh, a couple of hundred square meters of just tar seal. And we were going to plant it up and turn it into this kind of beautiful, like garden oasis with hot springs in it. Um, and in the meantime, we put a caravan on there and we're doing coffee and toasties and later beer and sodas. Um, and that was that just to cover the, like, cause you had already taken the lease. So you were like, we better make some money off it. Totally. And then we were going to put <laughs> hot spot pulls in it eventually, but we never quite got there. <laughs> never quite got there. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Good to hear that. Like more convoluted way of even more convoluted than I might've thought. Yeah, it's it's one of those ones that sounds crazy, but it actually could have been really good if we'd, mm. if we'd been able to pull it off. You never know, could still happen. Could still happen. And so then you also had another bar in Newtown, and that's kind of where the Six Barrels story enters into it a little bit, because you were running this bar and you were looking around for syrups that you could use to make cocktails and sodas, but you just couldn't find anything right that was good enough, I guess, for what you wanted. And that's when you started making them yourself. So what was the kind of first flavor that you made and what were you doing with the syrups in that bar? It was a combination of a few things. One, it was one, it was trying to make these complicated drinks that I've been making overseas in a much more simple format. So instead of go, instead of adding, you know, two raspberries, 10 mils of lemon juice, a teaspoon of sugar, blah, 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 blah. Now I could just go, bam, just put 30 mils of this in there. Was that because it was your business? So you were like seeing the kind of cost side of it? Or was it because the Wellington market just didn't demand those kind of more fancy elements? Uh, it was it was to make it easier. <laughs> uh, it was to make it easier for me and easier for staff, to train staff, um, and to make it more consistent. Yeah, so the, uh, the first flavor, the first couple of flavors were um a lemon and raspberry syrup that i was making for a old cocktail called floridora which is has ginger in it as well and then i also was making a i guess our cherry pomegranate which we still have now was originally a grenadine replacement so grenadine is a kind of classic cocktail syrup um just a pomegranate syrup Grenade, pomegranate. Um, so yeah, I guess those were the first couple that I was making. 
So next up, let's kind of think about how you moved from making those syrups yourself in the bar because I can kind of picture that you're, you know, like you've got a bottle with a strip of tape on it and it says raspberry syrup and the date you made it. Like that's quite a long way away from the six barrel that we know and we see in the supermarket and Farrow Fresh and everything. What were the kind of steps that you started taking to get that syrup you were using in the bar into a more marketable product? Yeah, right. That's exactly how it was, like um, masking tape with a vivid. Yeah. Um, that kind of, I guess we had, a, we had a bunch of interests. So people were, people were into the drinks that we were making. Um, people were asking about them. We started doing some more out there flavors and people were saying other, other hospitality people were saying, Hey, that's really cool. Like, how do you make that? What is that? Um, so we thought, well, you know, there's a pretty good opportunity here to turn this into a real product. Um, and how we kind of went about that was we knew that we could pump it out of the kitchen at Monterey, which is the bar. Um, it was only open from 3 PM. So we had all day to make it there. Uh, but what we really wanted was, um, something a bit more, a bit more extra than that. We want it to be a, more of a brand, more of a, um, and have a physical element to it. So then we started, then we, then we opened the, sh opened the soda shop, um, in 2012. And as part of that, we kind of built the brand of the products and we built the concept of the drinks and how they would work and how people could come and see them and try them and see the product getting made. Um, so yeah, we used a branding designer to come up with the branding who we worked really closely with. Um, and yeah, then once the shop was open, we had a kind of regular base of customers to test ideas out on, to talk to about the brand one-on-one -on -one, and we really built things out from there. And what was different about these syrups that you guys were making? Like, obviously there were syrups around already that people were making to make sodas, um, and find them in the supermarket and things like that. But what made the six barrel ones so good and so different? Yeah. There, I mean, there were, and there weren't, I think we had New Zealand's, you know, we've always had soda stream as a thing here. Um, but really apart from that, there wasn't a lot like you can, you know, you can use, lime cordial with sparkling water and make a lime soda. But I think mostly people were using cordials as kind of the old English style with, you know, flat water. Um, or they were making soda stream or they were buying a 1.5 liter bottle of Coke. So what, I guess how we were different was we were like, well, we are purely for making sodas. Sure. You can do other stuff with them, but that's the kind of main goal. Um, we've got some flavors that are unique that people have never heard of. We're using ingredients that are usually reserved for cooking and cocktails rather than sodas, which traditionally were just whatever we'll do. Um, and having the space meant it was somewhere that people could kind of come and see the drinks. We could garnish them with the level of care that you'd usually reserve for, for cocktails or food, um, and just turn that into more of an experience kind of mentioned a few times the soda shop on Eva Street for people listening Eva Street is one of those famous Wellington 
foody laneways where um and in the shop you could get sodas and sliders and fries like you've mentioned and then after i think it was about five years you move you closed the shop and moved to a new factory space to kind of focus on wholesale channels and direct to customer was that a hard decision when you had to close that shop because that was kind of the birthplace of six barrel or were you just so ready to move on from that it was really hard it was a big jump for us um we always saw Six Barrel as a wholesale soft drink business first, rather than necessarily a hospitality business. You know, I, I mean, our own our own hospitality, um, and the shop did take away from that a little bit. We loved the shop, but it didn't make sense once we moved production out. We thought it was going to. We thought we could move the production kitchen out to the new space and just run a straight soda shop there, but it was too empty after all those years of it being this big bustling kind of place with the smells of the drinks and everything else to go from that just to being a, to be honest, quite empty space where there used to be sodas made there. It didn't work. So it was, yeah, it was definitely sad, but it wasn't a hard decision. Um, it would have hemorrhaged cash and it wasn't, great anymore so it made sense to shut it down and focus on the other stuff and that takes us to kind of where we are now which is where six barrel is in a dedicated factory space which is still right in the center of wellington and that's where i work although obviously not at the moment because i'm at home i guess the people might be picturing kind of like mega factories like production lines and bottles rattling along and spinning around and everything like i really love the mega factories program you all should watch it but can you paint a picture for everyone listening like what is a soda factory actually like and what is the production process involved for six barrel cool yeah no there's no conveyor belts um much to my despair <laughs> one day we'll get conveyor belts grace um I think about it more as a kitchen rather than a factory um, because it is such a handmade product and it is so, um, you know, we're, we're prepping fruit, we're cutting ginger, we're steeping. It's a, it feels more like a kitchen than a, a factory, which can be really um, obviously mechanical and often robotic. I have been to some of the mega soda factories um, and it's, very different to what we're doing yeah so it's 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 much more hands-on the process is is relatively simple um we use fair trade organic cane sugar water and fruit spices um juices that sort of thing um mix them all together steep them for a certain amount of time strain them put them in bottles that's the that's the process um and we also have our carbonated range which is we contract out to a, a big place because that is uh, that's the sort of thing where you need a big factory. It's just a battle of who's got the biggest steel and um, the the longest conveyor belts. So we we contract that out for them. And we mentioned a little bit about or oh, earlier we mentioned that you can see six barrel in the supermarket. You can tell us like as a like a really independent and a craft brand was supermarkets like a big strategic decision for the business how did you go about making that move and was it kind of like siding with the devil a little bit like a necessary evil just to get the product out there or or were you um was it just a natural progression for the business it was something we talked about for ages 
it how it started was Thorned and New World, who are you know a pretty incredible supermarket. They came to us and they said, "Hey, we want to stock you guys," and we said no because of that. You know, we were fiercely independent. We were like supermarkets are the devil, and you know, we just want to be doing our thing. Um, and then about a year later, they came back and they said, "Hey, we really want you guys on the shelves. Um, this is what we're doing." And we went down and had a look, and we we're like, "They've got all sorts of cool stuff here." Like they've got all sorts of great beers, craft beer is everywhere. And then we're like, hang on, we shop at the supermarket and it's real nice being able to get garage project at the supermarket. Maybe people will want to get ours here. Um, and we did feel like it was a little bit of a sellout move, but then the first week we were in there, I got maybe three or four messages from friends being like, I just went to Thorn and New World. That's so cool. Your syrups are in there. Well done. That's amazing. And I was like, yeah, actually getting in a supermarket's kind of a big deal. Like it's kind of great. So that made me feel a lot better about it. Plus they sell quite well. So, And it just gets it out there into more people that might not come across it otherwise, I guess. Do you have any tips for someone out there who might be wanting to start a product that they would like to get into a supermarket? Is there any like secrets to it? Um, I don't know if there's any secrets apart from make stuff that's going to sell soup there's a there's a, a handful of supermarkets who who care about having really cool stuff and having and supporting local producers but there are a handful of them and the rest of them it, it is really like whatever sells they will sell so <clears throat> yeah i think you can't expect to get a product that is kind of like real dinky and made in your kitchen at home into supermarkets and it will sell really well. It is a, it is a lot more of a long-term thing. Um, and, and do you need to as well? Like, you know, that, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get in a supermarket and sell thousands and thousands of your product. If it is a bit more niche and it doesn't have a huge marketing budget. So are there other channels that you can do that maybe, um, are more appropriate? I feel like we kind of just skipped over quite a lot of a seven to eight year journey and made it sound quite, smooth and simple but i'm sure that kind of it i'm sure it wasn't so looking back over those kind of last seven or, or so years if you could pick one kind of part of this journey what do you think has been the most challenging part of it i think for any product business the most challenging part is is kind of stage two so stage one is like make something that's good get a sticker on the front of it and have it available like literally anywhere for sale. And that is, that's hard and takes a lot of like, you know, you've got to spend some money and you've got to do, you've got to take a bit of risk and put yourself out there. Um, but the next stage of getting it to a wider audience, getting it with distributors, getting it maybe in supermarkets, that is the, that is the part that I, that felt easier in phase one than it was, than it actually ended up being. That's what, I guess that's what we've been doing. That took us sort of four years to go from a dinky product that you could buy in half a dozen places to being relatively available. Um, and yeah, relatively well known. Is there anything that you would do differently if you did it all again now? I think starting young is quite good for these sorts of businesses because you do have a little bit of naivety and you do have uh, a lot more ability to kind of hustle 
and maybe take more risks. So I think starting something again now would be would be much more difficult. I think knowing what I know now, I'd try and be a lot more strategic about it. Whereas some of the kind of chaotic ideas actually ended up paying off, and it's hard to it's hard to avoid those, you know, when you are young and and a little bit naive. Yeah, and you never know where like things can look totally differently, different with just one little tweak, and you just don't really know. So just have to roll with it, I guess. And so one thing we haven't really touched on a little bit, um, but that's a big part of Six Barrel is the kind of sustainability part of the brand and part of our values. So obviously ditching single-use plastic bottles for a recyclable glass bottle that actually makes 15 drinks instead of one drink. Uh, that's one obviously big part of it. But then there's other bits like paying our team a living wage, composting. We're working at the moment on carbon positive certification. Like all of those things, they aren't, I guess, like traditionally you wouldn't call them necessary for the everyday running of a business. Like you could operate without doing those things. Um, and they definitely make things more expensive to run. Have you ever kind of considered cutting corners like that to save a bit of on costs or is that just not negotiable for six bearer? I think it's not negotiable. Um, I, I see, I see businesses being like an expression of a, of a, of an individual often. So those things for me are personal values. So if I, you know, if I'm, if I'm composting at home and trying to buy independent products and organic where I can and that sort of thing, and then, you know, just like shilling terrible sodas and plastic bottles. Like I, I don't think that that doesn't make any sense for me. So that's always the value side of things. Uh, I guess an extension of my personal values. And so I wouldn't feel comfortable not doing them. And I feel like if you can't, if you can't do those things, then you in 2020, then you don't have a viable business. So you just have to stop. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's kind of why I say like traditionally not necessary, but I guess there's an argument there that now it pretty much is necessary for every business to have have that as part of their values in one way or another, I guess. Yeah, that's pretty consumer driven. Um, I mean, there's plenty of businesses in the 80s and 90s who were doing, well, maybe not plenty, but there were some businesses in the 80s and 90s who were, who were doing that. Um, and that just, that just shows the, I guess, the personal values that they were like, we're going to do this even though no one else is doing it. You know, like EcoStore and, you know, Phoenix and those sorts of brands who were doing pretty pretty um advanced stuff at the time and even the early craft beer guys you know it was like we're gonna we're gonna put all these hops in it's gonna cost us a fortune but the beer is gonna be really interesting um and definitely it's more common now so as i i will mention in my kind of introduction six barrel is now getting into looking at exporting and starting to export overseas to australia the us hong kong maybe some more to come for like a new zealand company i guess export is usually the answer to that what's next kind of question like new zealand is great but it is small you can test something here but at some stage if you want to keep growing you're you're probably going to have to look overseas. What has that process been like for Six Barrel? Is it something that you actively pursued as a managing director or did that did an opportunity come up that you couldn't resist? Initially, it was, a, yeah, initially it was an opportunity. And then the more recent, the last couple of years has been more strategic. So we did everything wrong in the start, in the, in the start of our export um start of our exporting so we 
how we started was we got a guy in Melbourne got in touch and said, Hey, I love your guys stuff. I'm a Kiwi. I've got a cafe. I'm going to air freight over, um, people's coffee and six barrel soda and three other brands from Wellington and sell them in my cafe and also wholesale them to other cafes. And we were like, this is insane, but I kind of love the energy. So we did it and we were air freighting bottles, which just cost an absolute fortune, um, over to this guy and it just didn't work. We just, his, he never paid us and the, the, the cafe was real cool, but you know, we just, we couldn't, we couldn't supply anyone else. We were never there. Um, so that kind of kept going for a little while. And then we picked up a distributor and again, didn't really give them the support they needed and didn't really know how to do it and had no marketing budget or anything. And we kind of just expected that they would make us hugely successful. And I think that never works. So the last couple of years have been a lot more strategic. We've kind of, we've, we've gone, you know, these are the markets we're looking at. This is the way we're going to enter the market. These are the sort of channels we're going to start with and, that's what phase one looks like. And then phase two looks like this. And, and are there any other kind of future plans on the cards? Is it all export, 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 or are there other diversification plans or anything like that in the works at the moment that you can tell us about? <laughs> um, there's always ideas. I think one of the other things I've been trying to work on is really streamlining those ideas into, Hey, this is actually a good one. And we should just do these three instead of, do 12 of them um i mean in terms of exports you know we're like you said we're in australia we're in america i mean that's 300 million 500 million people or something that's a lot of people so let's try and do that quite well um so yeah instead of trying to get into 100 countries in the next three years we're really trying to focus on supporting those few markets as best we can growing the markets there, growing some opportunities. Um, we also just opened domestically. We just opened our Auckland store, um, which we might get to, but one week before the close down. Um, and so that is, I mean, that's something we've been talking about and working on for years. And we're hoping that that is going to become a big part of our market in the future as well. The direct to consumer channels and the physical, um, physical retail and, and, um, drink making present. Yeah, there's a lot of different aspects of, of everything that's going on that we probably won't have time to cram into here. But let's just wrap up this kind of segment. I'm, I want to ask you a question that I don't think often gets asked of maybe male business people, career people, but um, I, I've asked this of female guests before, so I want to ask you as well. What does that kind of work family juggle balance look like for you because you obviously have two kids you have your dad life your family life your hobbies and interests if you have time for any of those <laughs> and your wife has a career as well so how do you find that dadding work balance plays out yeah so when we started six barrel i had no children um and that was you know that was a, a lot freer i guess to kind of work more crazy hours um and, you know, really give a hundred percent to the business. And then I had Nina was born a couple of years after we started Six Barrel. And I always wanted to be, I guess, a, a big part of her life, um, as well as, yeah, letting, you know, not, 
letting Willow have her career as well. Um, so I really went quite strict on working 40 hour weeks, having weekends off. I remember one of our goals, me and Mike, we were setting like six monthly goals. And one goal was to not work weekends. And then the other goal was to like pay ourselves, you know, like we had these like really, what now seem like really basic kind of goals, but at the time felt quite revolutionary. And after a decade of hospitality, having weekends off was pretty spectacular. Um, yeah, so I've just had to prioritize it. I mean, it's meant hiring staff to do some of the things that I would have otherwise done. Um, yeah, and I'm, you know, I, I still keep pretty tight to a 40 hour week. I guess it just comes down to with a lot of things in that business space, what, where your personal values are and what you place the importance on and, and whatever that is, you'll, that's what it'll end up looking like, I guess. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not one of the, one of those people who's like, you need to work 150 hour weeks and, you know, give everything and sell your house and put every single cent into the business and blah, 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 blah. That just stresses me out so much. Like I want to be able to, have a nice life as well as that. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and that's going to make it more sustainable. Yeah, totally. Hopefully. <laughs> and right on cue, I think I heard some kids in the background just then too. Yeah. Milo's just banging on the window. It's like they knew we were talking about them. They did. So let's flip ourselves now back into the real world as we mentioned we're both working from home in our respective bubbles um, and we are in the middle of the lockdown for COVID-19 at the moment hopefully by the time this actually comes out next week we we might not be in level four anymore but who knows at the moment um, I want to talk a bit about the impact that COVID-19 has had on Six Barrel I guess as a business that is supplying to cafes and bars and restaurants all of those are now closed at the moment that must mean that the business has had to have taken a bit of a hit, right? Yeah. So we're, I'm really thankful that we're classified as an essential service because we supply supermarkets and we make food and beverage. Um, so that's meant that we've still got some income. So we're pretty lucky that, that, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty lucky in that respect. Um, but at least 50% of our business is to cafes, bars and restaurants who are now all closed. Um, so that's been, yeah, that's been a huge chunk of our day-to-day -day orders. Um, and we've just really had to roll with that and work out what else we can do and how to support those customers and how to, you know, come back punching once things do get back open again. And one of the cool things that I found on, in these chats with people is just hearing about ways that businesses have got creative and maybe pivoted a bit, things like that. Is there anything that you, you think that Six Barrel's done well during this period to get a bit creative? Yeah, I don't, we've done some things. I don't think we've done anything. We haven't had to do anything completely revolutionary, I guess, because we do still have the, mm. um, we do still have some business coming in. We've definitely seen a huge jump in our online sales. Um, and we've been trying to work work that around um, getting listings on sites who are saying, you know, these are some independent businesses you should support. So that's been really cool. Um, we've done a lot of thinking about how the next stage develops and how we can kind of best, best work through that. Um, yeah, but generally I think it's just been a matter of 
let's get this let's get this done take it a day at a time and see where things end up yeah six barrel is is reasonably unique in that it we are still able to operate um it's obviously a lot reduced at the moment but there's you know things are still ticking over obviously not all businesses are that lucky but i think yeah it's still been there's been a lot of thought put into it and a lot of planning and things so i guess that's all super important at the moment yeah totally and it's been a pretty great uh, opportunity in some ways to sit but to take a little bit of time out and go what are we doing and why like what's next and what are the what are the things that are actually important and what are the things that we're just doing because of it sounded cool at the time <laughs> and there's always things that you're when you're kind of caught up in the day-to-day business as usual there's things that you always wish you could do if you had time and i think that's been one of the cool things that i've seen is that you've really been like well we actually finally have that time like let's let's use it let's do all those things that we've been saying we never have time for um and i think that's yeah that's really smart thing to do at the moment so that's been playing out well and so i could probably answer this myself but i will let you do the honors how can everyone out there support six rail soda co during this lockdown time and then beyond as well cool yeah um well we've had a ton of support already which has been super super nice and super reassuring um I think the main ones at the moment were, uh, I guess, buy our stuff. So if you if you see it in the supermarket, it'd be great if you could buy a bottle. Um, buying it online would be great as well. Um, but the main one would really just be when when things open up again, go out, go to cafes, go to bars, hopefully buy our drinks when they're there, but even just supporting them. I mean, if we, yeah, if we come out of this and all of our hospitality operators are still going, and can still have viable businesses ongoing that would be that's great for us as well as being amazing for them and their customers and of course follow us on social media and like all our posts i'm just going to drop that one in there too yes don't forget (laughs) to like our posts thanks (laughs) (laughs) and what's the first thing that you're going to do when the lockdown lifts okay i think there's two one is just so much coffee um and Two is probably Lucky Chicken. Um, just like Liz and I were speaking the other day, Liz is our um, warehouse manager, about just how much we took for granted going out and getting a sandwich and getting lunch every day. So really kind of appreciating that a bit more. Yeah, totally. It just, it's, yeah, it's made us all realize all those little things that we were not appreciating enough and at least for a while afterwards i hope we will i'm sure that'll fade at some stage totally and when we're allowed to just like hugging everybody (laughs) yeah it's funny how you miss that you don't even think about it at the time all right so i think that's probably just about our time up but thank you so much joe for joining me for a chat it's cool to hear the whole kind of a six barrel story in one hit and there were definitely some parts of it that I, I don't think I did know so that was cool and I will say again a little bit selfishly but everyone please do follow at six barrel soda co on Instagram or Facebook give us some love and remember that you can still order online during the lockdown and use the code take care for free shipping <laughs> just put a little plug in there for everyone love it so thank you Joe <laughs> see you soon either um, on zoom or hopefully in real life soon that'd be great Thanks so much, Grace. You're amazing. So there you go. There were indeed a few surprises along the way, I think, in there. 
it was really great to get a bit of a behind the scenes into how like a soda company even comes to life in the first place and a bit of what goes on behind the scenes too. I think it just really goes to show from talking to Joe that you really don't need to know exactly what you want to do with your life either at high school or even at uni otherwise maybe we would have been chatting with Justice Joe today. But if you just roll with it and follow what kind of really interests you and say yes to opportunities, it can lead you to somewhere pretty great. I realized after that that I forgot to ask Joe what his best piece of advice was, which is how I always like to take things out on a high note. But I did just flick him a quick text afterwards and he replied straight away to tell me it is, you can't win a game seven without losing three games first. So there you go, we snuck in a little bit of Joe Wisdom there at the end anyway. So thanks again everyone out there for joining us for a chat today and please do remember to follow at PepTalkNZ, tell your mates and also throw us a quick review on Apple Podcasts too when you get a second. Until next week, bye!